0: Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, it's such a pleasure to be able to share with you today. Uh, you know, I've been retired now for a few years, and but the truth is God really never calls us into retirement. He may put us on a stool because we can't stand as long as we used to, but he just frees you up, really, to be able to do more of what he's called you to do. And I, I really have appreciated this time to be able to spend time with people. Uh, I used to work really hard, keeping the wheels on the bus going round and round, and that was the church pastor to church for many years uh, but and I tell you, it was a difficult job it 's a hard job to keep to keep this thing going every Sunday, but it is such a blessed job, and I absolutely loved it uh, I uh, am blessed to call Lifehouse my home, and all of you my family. I uh, walked in the door some four years ago and knew immediately that this was home, and it has been ever since. So we're here now at the final week of an eight-week series called Freedom. It's been an excellent series with different voices bringing different aspects of freedom. What we're gonna do is we're gonna look back over those weeks and recap what we've learned. Ryan began the first week by pointing out one very basic fact, and that is to realize I am not God. Now that sounds pretty obvious, but actually in life experience, we forget. And we try to be God in our own life, and we try to be God especially in other people's lives. Jeremy told us in the second week to earnestly believe that God does exist and to believe that I matter to him and that he has the power to help me recover. Week three, we were encouraged to consciously commit all of our life and will to Christ's care and control. And you know what? This means the good, the bad, and the ugly. He wants it all. He doesn't want just the pretty parts that we'd like to give to him. Week four, Alicia encouraged us to openly examine our faults and confess them to God, to myself, and to someone I can trust, and I want to emphasize that word, to someone you can trust. Week five, we were told to voluntarily surrender to every change God wants to make in your life and ask him to remove your character flaws. Week six called us to evaluate all of our relationships. We must offer forgiveness to those people that we've hurt and make amends uh, for that and We need to forgive the people who have hurt us. Last week, we were reminded that we need to reserve a daily time with God for self-examination, for Bible reading, in order that we will know God and know his will for our life. So here we are today at week eight, and I will be talking to you about yielding yourself to God, to be used to bring his good news to others, both by example and by your word. This eighth step is all about you and your story. It's about you telling others what God has done for you. But in order to be the good news, we must yield to God and allow him to comfort us and recycle the pain in our life for the benefit of others. Second Corinthians one, three, and four says, "'Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Now that, folks, is a whole lot of comfort in one thing. (laughs) Most of us think that God uses only the really gifted, extraordinarily talented people, And you know what? That simply is not true. God uses ordinary people. In fact, he does his very best work through weak and broken people, just like you, just like me. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10, And he has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So on this final week, I get to talk to you about pain and weakness. Wow, did we save the hardest one to last? I believe that we did. I've even been given the job of addressing the universal question, why does God allow pain and suffering? And I want to thank Brian for this right now. This is not the easiest thing in the world to do. <laughs> uh, the first thing about uh, the reasons that we're going to look into, there are four of them. And the first one is basically that God has given us all free will. God created us in his image. And part of that image is the freedom of choice. You can reject him or you can accept him. It's your choice. God is a lover. He doesn't want puppets. He wants us to love him freely and voluntarily. We can't really love someone unless we have the opportunity not to love them. We can't really choose good unless we have the option to choose bad. It's both a blessing and a burden our choices can either bring life or pain to ourselves and others, and he gives others free will. Sometimes others choose to do wrong, and you get seriously hurt as an innocent victim. Now, you know, God could have prevented that hurt for you by taking away that other person's free will, but in order to do that, he would have had to take away your free will as well. Pain is part of the free will package the second point is that God uses pain to get our attention pain is not your problem your depression anxiety and even fears are not your problem they are the warning lights that tell us that something is wrong and we need to deal with it pain is a wake-up call and sometimes it takes a very painful experience to really wake us up Pain can be severe, like a bad burn or a deep cut or even a heart attack. But without those painful sensations, we wouldn't pay attention. We wouldn't be aware of the threatening danger. The blessing of pain is that it gets our attention and lets us know that there is something really wrong. 2 Corinthians 7, 9 and 10 in the message reads, I know I distressed you greatly by my letter. Although I felt awful at the time... I don't feel at all bad now that I have seen how it turned out. The letter upset you, but only for a while. Now I'm glad, not that you were upset, but that you were jarred into turning things around. You let the distress bring you to God, not drive you from him. The result was all gain, no loss. Distress that drives us to God does that. It turns us around. It gets us back in the way of salvation. We never regret that kind of pain. The third uh, thing that we'll look at is that God uses pain to teach us to depend on him. The truth is, some of us only learn through pain. It's one of life's greatest teachers. In the darkest hour of the night, when our thoughts are running wild and the pain is unbearable, We have no place else to go. Nothing else truly has the power to help, and we begin to depend on God. The fourth thing is everybody needs recovery of some type, mental, physical, spiritual, social, or relational. We all have hurts, hangups, and habits, and we all want someone who understands where we are and where we've been. God does want to recycle your pain to help others. We all want to avoid pain at any cost. And when we can't, we push it down, block it out, and boy, are we ever good at covering it up. No one wants to face it head on. But I'm telling you, there are some things in life we cannot get around or skip over. Going through is the only way you are ever going to find true freedom from your pain. And by going through, I mean being willing to yield to that place and stay with that pain until God accomplishes his purpose and brings us out of it. People hurt us. We hurt others. But most of all, we hurt ourselves by the choices we make. And it's all because we have this beautiful gift called free will. I was in my 30s when my life fell apart. I'd quit school at the end of my junior year in high school, and one week later, I married the man I believed that I would spend the rest of my life with. I was only 17 years old, and just so you know, I didn't have to get married. I was a stubborn, rebellious teenager who wanted to get married. And by the time I was 23, I was the mother of four little stair-step girls, and in my 30s, I had a fifth child, a little boy. We had purchased a brand-new house, five bedrooms, very nice community. My husband worked two jobs so I could stay home with the children. Life from the outside looked pretty good. But you know what? Things aren't always the way they seem. In fact, they seldom are. I was overwhelmed and living with a hidden pain that I couldn't understand. I've always struggled with my weight, and at that time, the doctors were so quick to give really, really powerful diet pills. They were so powerful that I found myself washing walls at 3 a.m. in the morning. So, I was given strong sleeping pills to help me sleep at night. I quickly became dependent on them, So the cycle of up and down became the pattern of my life until I felt as though I were really going crazy, and in fact, I think I was. There were outbursts of anger as I hurled hateful, cutting words and obscenities at the children I loved. They no longer knew who I was or what had become of their mother. There were moments of uncontrollable crying and moaning, so pitiful that those same sweet children would often push past their fears, enter the room, trying to comfort me. There were days when I couldn't get up and Kathy and Debbie would take over, packing lunches and getting the younger children ready for school. There were nights I couldn't sleep at all, nights when I would roam from room to room, looking for someone who was awake that I could talk to. There were altercations with neighbors who were really good friends. During this time, I made three attempts to take my own life. It never worked because truly I was not serious. I I didn't want to take my own life, but I wanted someone to come, someone to pay attention, and someone to take away the pain I was feeling. It was at this breaking point of my life when I knelt at the altar of my Lutheran church and received the bread and wine from the hand of my pastor My heart was breaking as I lay my head on the altar rail and cried out to God. I know that you are real. I know that this is real. I know that this is bigger than bread and wine. And I know something powerful happens as I kneel here, but it doesn't seem like it. All of my life, people have told me that you love me and that you are love. But what is love? I don't know how to love. I don't know how to love this man or these children or even you. If you're real and if you do love me, please, please come and help me. And God was faithful. On a cold, dark January night, a short time after this prayer, all of the anguish and torment of my soul was racing through me. Sleep was like an elusive lover and I tossed and turned in desperation wanting to die. But all of a sudden, there was a hush, a deafening hush, settled over me like a thick blanket of snow on a country field. I didn't move for fear that the presence, like no presence I'd ever known before, might vanish as quickly as it had come. I wondered if my mind could be playing a trick on me, as if in answer, every muscle in my body began to relax. Regret vanished. Fear faded. Love was so thick and so real that I was engulfed and enfolded in it. It felt deeper than the deepest ocean. My heart cried out, Lord, I don't know why you would want this ruined, worthless life. I don't want it. I'm tired of sinning. I'm tired of hiding. And I'm tired of trying to fix everything in my life. Please forgive me. Please take me. I'm yours. And I yielded to God. How can your life flash before you in an instant? How can drug addictions vanish in the blink of an eye? How can every tear that you've ever cried be wiped away? How can every deep, dark fear and confused desire dissolve, leaving only peace? How can your lonely heart feel at home at last? In only a split second and you haven't moved from your bed. I still don't know the answer to all these questions, but I know that as I lay there that night in the darkness, with the darkness inside of me that was deeper than the night itself, I was made whole again. My pain had taken me on a journey that ended at the foot of the cross. As Jesus took the towel and basin of water and began to wash the feet of the disciples, Peter forbade him, When Jesus insisted that it had to be done, Peter, being the all or nothing kind of guy that he was, cried out, wash all of me. Jesus told him, Peter, you're already clean. You only need to have your feet washed. At the moment in time when we acknowledge our need for God's forgiveness and redemption, salvation comes. It brings life where there once was death and we are clean. But the span of time between the moment of that conversion and the reality of the magnificent exchange that has taken place can be vast, often many years and sometimes decades. In the interim, we live as our cleansing had never happened, but it did. And I want you to know that God is totally committed to us, even when we are less than committed to Him. He knows that we are His, And he will not let go. I had given my life to Jesus when I was 11 years old. I can remember praying at the foot of an altar at a Methodist church. And I knew in my little 11-year-old mind that it was a real thing. I always knew something real had taken place. But as I moved through life for all those years, seeking God for a time, then ignoring him, then seeking him again... I felt as though the experience had never really quite taken. I could sometimes smell it, almost taste it, but nothing changed in the way that I was living. Yet all the while, I knew God was faithful and I was a Christian. The second time I knelt at the altar, some three decades later, I cried out to God, my Father. A transaction of grace and the washing of my feet cleansed away the filth of the world that I had gathered in the years of everyday life as his child. His presence filled my room and invited me to come to him, to come again, and I did. The first time at 11 years of age, I came seeking salvation. The second time, he came and washed my feet. It's been 45 years since that night, and my life has never been the same. God did a lasting work deep within my heart. And it was a work that would be tested time and time again throughout the years. But God has proven himself faithful over and over again. For the next five years, I was happier than I had ever been in my life. And it wasn't an outward happiness. It was pure joy. God had plans for me, and I began to study, and in turn, I would teach. I found myself in places with spiritual warfare that would make you shudder. They certainly made me shudder. But God had been setting people free and was using me in ways that I never would have believed. During this time, I began to write, and I would wake in the middle of the night with poems that I knew were from God because they certainly were not from me. I would come to realize that one of them was a prophetic word for me, telling me to hang on. In this furnace of affliction, with heat, I cannot stand. Feeling flames and smelling smoke, I reach out for your hand. For in your furnace long ago, your Hebrew children stood, all because they would not bow, but trusted in your word. And you were there to rescue them. You walked among the flames. You brought them forth as purest gold to glorify your name. So in this furnace of affliction, I trust, I understand that you've not forsaken me. It's all part of your plan. And after 27 years of a faithful marriage, my husband met a woman on March 17, 1979, and by April 1st, he had left me and, my, and his children and had moved in with her and her children. I felt as though my world had exploded. In fact, it had. The pain of betrayal and abandonment were unspeakable. Combine this with the fact that I was a high school dropout and I had never worked a job in my life. I had no way to support myself. All I had ever wanted to be was a wife and mother. Talk about betrayal and pain. I was wounded, broken, alone, and vulnerable. This was pain inflicted by the free will of another. But you know, I learned some really valuable things during this time. I realized that I was not nearly as good and holy as I had believed. Hatred, jealousy, envy, and even murder became very visible as I walked through this unknown territory. Part of me wanted to kill them both. My walk through this wilderness is for another time, but I want to share a major thing that I learned during this time of healing for me. Our healing does not depend on anything or anyone in our life except ourselves. Where others have wounded us, and those wounds are very real. It is usually not the wounds they have inflicted that keep us captive, but it's our response to the wounds. When we realize this and take responsibility for our own responses, we can receive healing from our wounds and we can release others from those offenses, and that really does set us free. The wounds and pain in our life have the power to draw us to the cross. There's really no place else to go. When that wound is taken to the cross and given to Christ, it is touched by the blood of Jesus, and it shines with the glory of God. And every wound that we receive becomes the voice that cries out, Holy is the Lord. And we are released from the bondage, to walk in freedom, a freedom that was purchased at a great price, the very life of Christ. And it's been quite a journey through the years, but it's been good, been very good. I want to close with a story that illustrates all four of the points I gave you at the beginning of this talk. It's a story of my youngest sister Kay and her husband Dave, and they have given me permission to share this with you. In 1986, they adopted a six-month-old blue-eyed baby boy that they named Matthew. Kay had given birth to their daughter five years earlier and had almost died. They were advised against having any other children. Thus, Matthew became a part of our family. He was a beautiful baby that everyone loved. He was always playful, and his smile could lighten up the darkest day. Kay and Dave weren't Christians. He had a wonderful job which provided everything that they could desire. He had a large, beautiful boat and K owned and trained show horses. Their life was picture perfect. And you know what? They believed that picture. Throughout the years, I had witnessed to them many times. One day she got really angry with me and told me, please don't give us any more of that born again stuff. We are happy. We don't need it, and we are tired of hearing it. So please, just leave us alone, would you? Well, let's fast forward now eight years. Matthew is now a handful that neither Kay nor Dave can manage. By 14, my sister described a good day as a day when the SWAT team didn't show up at her door. This beautiful child was completely out of control, during this time, he almost killed himself several times in what's play for most children. As a teen, drugs and alcohol entered the picture, and they were completely beside themselves, trying to figure out how to help this child that they loved. Their heart was broken, and their, and their lives were riddled with pain. Surely, they had done something wrong, or they didn't do something that they should have. It surely had to be their fault. They had to deal with friends who were no longer friends as parents feared for their children's safety. Matthew was violent and unpredictable. They took him to doctor after doctor, counselor after counselor, spending money to the point of almost going bankrupt. They barely got him through high school and feared what his future would hold. And secretly, my sister feared for the safety of herself, her husband, and their daughter. You can imagine my surprise when she phoned me one day to tell me that both she and Dave were being baptized the coming weekend. She wanted to thank me for all the love and all the prayers and most of all that I had never given up on them. It seems that a friend had invited them to attend a group for parents with troubled children. Of course, it was sponsored by a church. Their pain had driven them to this place, and Christ had welcomed them with open arms. Christ had stepped into their mess and comforted them. God also knew what was going to be ahead for them. At 20 years of age, Matthew and his girlfriend Mimi had a baby boy that they named Matthew. Everyone called them Big Matt and Little Matt. Matt and Mimi were both partying drinking and doing drugs. Because Big Matt was so violent and unpredictable, my sister feared for the baby's life. Then in the middle of the night, they got the phone call that they knew would eventually come, one that would inform them that either Matt had killed someone or been killed himself. Big Matt had been murdered outside of his apartment a fight got out of the control and the other young man, high on drugs, shot Matthew and killed him. Little Matt had just separate, celebrated his f- first birthday. The confusion, guilt, and pain, and yes, even relief, was unbearable. My, now, my sister now knew that little Matt would be safe. Those who work with grieving people call this complicated grief. Her heart was broken but she was relieved that Matt could no longer hurt anyone. Christ carried them, and the body of Christ held them close, stood with them through these dark, dark days. You know, it's really hard to walk with people who are in so much pain. We don't know really what to say, and often the things that we say aren't all that helpful. The most powerful thing happened one day as Kay's friend came up Put her arm around her. Kay looked up at her with tears in her eyes and said, Are you going to pray with me? And her friend said, No, I've come to cry with you. And that's a powerful way to walk with a hurting friend. Don't try to fix things, don't try to make things better, because you can't, but you can cry with them. I had the privilege of walking with them, helped plan the funeral and later attended the murder trial. For some reason, they were not allowed to be in the courtroom, and it comforted them to know that I was there. In the days following the funeral, Dave was tormented and simply couldn't let go of the feeling that something had been really wrong with Matthew. He went through the proper channels and was able to obtain all of Matthew's adoption records, and they were shocked. They had been told that Matthew's mother was a healthy teenage girl, She was not. She was an older woman of the streets, alcoholic and drug addicted. Matthew was one of many of her children that were placed for adoption. Then everything began to make sense. Matthew was the victim of fetal alcohol syndrome. He was a textbook case. At that time, bars and liquor stores were not required to warn about the effects of alcohol on unborn children. It took several years, but because of the hard work, dedication, and persistence and perseverance of Kay and Dave, the state of Virginia passed legislature that required warnings to be posted wherever alcohol was sold. And Dave, seeing the consequences and effects of addiction began leading a Bible study and ministering at a a local woman's prison. He understood their pain and could relate to them as many had lost children to violence. He has now completed 25 years of ministry to and loving those forgotten women with Christ's love, offering them a hope and a way out. I've had the privilege of going with him a couple of times And to say that they love Brother Dave is putting it mildly. I do believe they would lay down their life for him. My sister has played a quieter role. She shops looking for bargains in all kinds of sizes and packs luggage with clothes for each woman who's being released from prison. The depth of pain that they have experienced has driven them to love, to help, to bring change to the lives of many that God has brought into their life. It pains my heart even as I begin to prepare to tell you the final chapter of Big Matt and Little Matt. Little Matt did not remember his dad at all. Remember he was only one when his dad died. But on the 18th anniversary of his daddy's murder, he drove his truck off a cliff and killed himself. He was 19 years old. Some say it was an accident, and Kay and Dave would like to believe that it was. But deep in their heart, they both knew that he had taken his own life. He had been a troubled child. Nothing remains of Big Matt or Little Matt except memories. Some wonderful, some not so much. But laws are now in place that have warned untold numbers about drinking when you're pregnant. And women's lives have been changed forever because of Christ's love through two very broken people. I doubt that Kay and Dave will ever get over the loss of their two boys. The grief still hangs like a cloud on a sunny day. But in the midst of the grief is joy. Their daughter, Carrie, had two children who have given Kay and Dave four beautiful, healthy, great grandbabies. I'm sure it is a constant reminder of a baby boy, beautiful on the outside, but broken deep within. He was an innocent victim of his mother's free will and her choice to drink and do drugs while she carried his forming life. You see, folks, there is a price to be paid when we sin. And it hurts not only us, but it hurts everyone in our life. Our choices to go our own willful way has a resounding effect on all those around us. We have within our power a choice. Well, I choose life and the blessing of God Or will I be the one who goes my own way and passes the curse to those in my life? So the question is, in the midst of our pain and suffering, will we yield to him? Will we allow him into that pain? Why does God allow pain? Why did all of this happen? There really are no good answers. But I know that God cries with us. His heart breaks as our heart breaks. And there is nothing so bad, so evil, that he will not use it for good. He'll use it for our good, and he'll use it for others' good, and he'll use it for his glory. Jude 1:20, 20, 22, 23. But you, beloved, building yourself up on your most holy faith praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourself in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And that's the fruit of Kay and Dave's pain and suffering. Many have been snatched from the fire. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you with grateful hearts today. Thank you so much for loving us and and actually for snatching each one of us out of that place of of fire. We're never gonna fully understand the pain and suffering we experience and see all around us. But you've promised never to leave us and never to forsake us. You've promised to work all things in our life together for good. We choose to believe these promises and to yield all of our lives into your tender, compassionate, and loving care. We are sorry for the times we have hurt others and ourselves because we refused your love and chose to go on our own willful way. Please forgive us and please set us on our feet on the right path. Help us live in such a way that our story will have an eternal effect on everyone you bring into our life. And Lord, let it be said of us that we have snatched many from the fire for you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.